are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos. And if you've been following along, we have finally entered into the second volume of the four-volume text. And uh, we've just gotten underway. We're still in the first hypothesis. And we, tonight we are starting on page 13 with letter G, about three-quarters of the way down the page. And uh, we've picked up with a similar theme. Uh, of humility. And uh, we've talked a lot over these past weeks about the wonderful parallel between St. John Climacus and the Evergatinos. Both are speaking to us about humility at this point. And John, uh, ever so poetic, uh, drawing us deeper and deeper uh, into seeing that humility um, is unlike the other virtues, that he describes it as the, the door to the kingdom, if you remember. Uh, a similar way that Christ describes himself, I am the door. And so we're given to understand that uh, humility is part of the very nature of God. And this is what is revealed to us in the incarnation that we are preparing to celebrate uh, all the way certainly through the cross and our understanding of the Eucharist, this uh, downward mobility, this uh, self-emptying uh, in order that one might love uh, without measure. And so as one finds oneself falling into the abyss of humility, uh, we are also uh, at the same time experiencing ourselves uh, falling into the abyss of love uh, because we are uh, entering more deeply into the kingdom. And we find this reflected in the Evergatinos as well, uh, but added to that multiple stories, illustrative stories that I think help uh, flesh it out for us. And one particular element that we've been looking at is a kind of self-abasement in the front, in, in the face of others, that in the way that we uh, sort of take joy when we are praised by others, that those who love humility, love the virtue, uh, uh, look at it in the same way, that they those experiences when they are dishonored or insulted, uh, they embrace in a spirit of joy, knowing that in some ways it conforms them uh, more and more to Christ. You will be hated all by all because of me, because of love of me, because of my name. And as confidence in that reality grows, as well as the experience of that intimacy, uh, one no longer fears it. And one no longer clings to ego in the same way that perhaps we have in the past. And so tonight we're picking up with uh, Abba Isaac uh, at the bottom of the page, Isaac the Syrian. He writes, lower yourself before all men, and you will be exalted above the princes of this age. Humble yourself, and you shall see the glory of God within you. For where humility springs up, in that place there also gushes forth the glory of God. So Isaac the Syrian, uh, as I've mentioned often before, is unparalleled. Uh, in, in the sense of, uh, or unmatched in uh, the beauty of his writing and his ability to capture, I think, uh, the essence of the Father's teaching. And we see that right here in the first paragraph, uh, that where humility springs up, 
then we also experience the gushing forth of the glory of God. And so this is very similar to what we hear in John, that falling into this abyss of humility, what we are entering into is this greater abyss of love. And again, once one begins to taste that reality, to experience it, it is no longer something that is feared, but it, that is desired. We, Nyapayro uh, clan, we are on page 13 of the second volume. If one struggles openly to humble himself, God will make him to be glorified by all men. If you have humility in your heart, God will manifest his glory in your heart. When you labor for virtue, take care that others look down upon you, and you will thus be honored by God. So we begin to share in the very glory of Christ and of the kingdom, the more that we embody this humility in our life. And again, this might not be something that uh, we will experience as being pleasant in the world, that uh, we would experience the uh, sort of the insults of others and how they look would might look down upon us. But internally, what one begins to experience again is the outpouring of God's grace and an experience of his own glory. And uh, we know that on the cross that, you know, that this glory was not seen. And in fact, he was mocked even in the midst of the suffering, but it is in this perfect self-emptying that uh, his glory is made manifest, the glory of the kingdom most fully. And Isaac uh, teaches that the knowledge of the cross is found within the cross. And then similarly, I think we would say the knowledge of humility is experienced in being humbled and experiencing, and experiencing a kind of union with Christ in, in this being humbled in the eyes of the world. And so he writes, despise honors that you might be honored. Honor flees from before him who runs after honor. Honor pursues him who flees honor, and such a one becomes a herald of this humility to all. If to be humble, you hypocritically debase yourself, God will expose you. If, however, you truly lower yourself, God will appoint all of his creations to praise you. There will then be open before you the door to the glory of your creator, and all shall laud you. For you shall abide in the image and likeness of God. Who has ever beheld a man who, while illumined by his virtues, luminous in life, wise in knowledge, and humble in mind, yet appears unimportant among men? So, you know, here is Isaac using the very same language that we find in John that there will be open before you the door to the glory of God, the creator. That, uh, again, this reveals to us that this experience of being humbled, uh, although it is, it is avoided by those within the world, and while one might be seen as nothing in the world, and while it cannot be something that we uh, pretend to manifest, that God will expose us, he tells us, he will reveal it. Uh, if one truly has the spirit, then we begin already to experience now uh, the glory of God and to be lauded by all. And all, by all, he mentions the all the saints and the angels, heaven itself. And, uh, and so this is what uh, it's important for us, I think, so often we've come across this in the writings of the fathers about coming to love the virtue and striving to see with the eyes of faith uh, what the world might only hold with contempt. That uh, intellectually, we are not going to find our way to this virtue because there's always going to be something that opposes it. Our ego is going to uh, uh, find itself shrinking back from it, or in our minds, we will judge something 
as uh, problematic with it, uh, that it, it is unreasonable or absurd uh, to uh, embrace such a life and that one is a fool for doing so. And so it is only with the eyes of faith that we come to see it as Isaac and as St. John Climacus describe it as something that draws us into the very glory of God himself. And only when one has tasted that truly, I think can one begin to desire it, have a kind of freedom. And throughout the rest of the text, we're going to come across uh, multiple stories of individuals for whom that was true. Any comments on Isaac's thoughts so far? All right. Letter H from the Gerontcon. A brother asked a certain elder, how does one become foolish for the sake of Christ? And the elder replied to him, there was a young boy in a monastery. He was given to an ascetic elder to rear and to teach the word of God. So the elder said to the boy, my child, when someone insults you, bless him. And when you are sitting at table, eat the spoiled food and leave the good. When you have occasion to select articles of clothing, leave what is nice looking and choose what is ugly. The child then said to him, are you perhaps telling me to do these things, Abba, because I seem stupid? And the elder answered, I told you to do these things so that you might become foolish for the sake of the Lord and so that the Lord might show you to be wise. Behold the manner by which the elder shows us that we can become foolish for the sake of the Lord. So here is even uh, a young young boy who's given to the care of an elder to be taught specifically the, the virtues. And what he has taught seems foolish to him. Do you think I'm stupid? Uh, are you talking to me this way because you think I'm an idiot, that I'm going to do all these things uh, unwittingly just because you tell me them? And, uh, and I think there's a part of us that responds like this boy that, uh, you know, that do you, you know, do you think I'm stupid to embrace this? Uh, it, that there is something that seems ridiculous again in the eyes of the world when we, when we think about it. And uh, when in particular, I think, uh, we, we look at certain saints, like St. Saint Francis of Assisi was coming to mind as we were reading this, that uh, even his own, the members of his own community uh, at certain points felt that he had gone too far, that they struggled to embrace the, the very life that he put before, before them, that even though they were attracted to it and that they could see the the glory of God being manifest through him, that when it really came to living it, there was part of them that balked at it, thought it was too extreme, tried to narrow it down. In some ways, Francis was betrayed and by those who were closest to him, uh, who uh, wanted to alter things. And, uh, and so even the saints, um, as they seek to embrace it, and even those who are seeking to learn from them and are attracted to them, uh, there can be when the ego again uh, takes center stage, it can make one lash out and uh, think uh, that, that the saints themselves are foolish. And, uh, and so I think this image of a, a child asking that question is an important one uh, for us to hear that I think often our response to the gospel, not just to the teachings of the fathers, but to the gospel as a whole is, do you think I'm stupid that I would live like that? And we might not say those words uh, and we might not even think it directly, but I think the whole movement of our life or the choices that we make the ways that we 
seek to provide security for ourselves, to, to build up fences around ourselves, protective uh, mechanisms uh, to keep us from being uh, harmed by others or protect us from the unexpected uh, or the unknown. All of these things are asking that same question. Do you think I'm stupid to live in this kind, with this kind of vulnerability? And I have these thoughts every single day. Uh, and because I think when you see enough in the church and outside of the church, you know, that so often seems, you know, uh, far from Christ-like, it is hard to have to be trusting and to have that level of trust, to place oneself truly in the hands of Christ, to trust in his divine providence, when we feel on some level that uh, our life could be altered uh, by others or the plans that we have in our mind, what seems good to us or what might be fruitful to us could be uh, somebody could place roadblocks for us. And again, I mean, those words, do you think I'm stupid, are underneath all the things that we do uh, to guard and protect our, ourselves from that. I read a little story, and I, I mentioned it to my mom earlier, about the, uh, the actress who was like 18 or 19, and all of a sudden her career took off. She was in a movie with Elvis Presley, Montgomery Cliff, Cliff, and a whole host of others. And then she uh, was in a movie on Francis and Claire, and I can't remember her name right now, but uh, she meets John the 23rd at the time. And when she introduces herself, she tells him, you know, in the movie Francis and uh, about Claire of Assisi. And he said something simple to her, like, you are Claire. And she had some other experiences that emerged from making that movie. And at that moment, she decides to become a nun. And she walks away from Hollywood. And she said there were friends who for years wrote angry letters to her saying, are you a fool? You know, to walk away from everything that is being said before you. Because she was on the rise and it was clear that she was going to be a star. And she simply told, you know, family members and friends, if you heard what I heard, you would take the same path so whatever she heard within her heart you know was enough to say you know fo follow me and strongly enough that uh, it led her to to leave off of that path but again you know it's this kind of holy fold that we've been talking about these past weeks and and have been given images of in, in our readings, you know, those who seem foolish in the eyes of the world, who would be so stupid to walk away from a career in Hollywood that was just beginning, beginning to bloom? You're throwing your life away. I mean, how many, how many people or those thinking about religious life have heard that said to them? Okay. Uh, continuing from the Drontcon. Number two, Abba Daniel said to Abba Dulos that at first he stayed in a Cenobitic monastery for 40 years. Afterwards, he lived as a hermit in Skidus and was considered one of the greatest of the fathers. Now, he would say, Abba Daniel continues, that having tasted of the two kinds of monastic life, I have found that in the Cenobitic Monastery, they prospered more greatly in working for the virtues than the Hesychast, if, of course, they applied themselves to obedience with their whole hearts. So this is very much along the lines of St. John Climacus in uh, elevating the common life uh, because this is where one is formed in the virtues, the ABCs, if you will, 
of the uh, monastic life, but also the gospel life, that here one is shaped and one's heart is shaped uh, through undergoing some of the things uh, uh, in that spirit of obedience that we've so often heard of. And uh, the author here emphasizes, though, if they apply themselves with their whole hearts to obedience. So, again, you know, simply living in a community isn't necessarily going to mean one is going to be humble or one is going to be obedient, that one still has to strive there. But uh, if one does strive and give one's heart over to it, uh, he says, you, you can be sure that the, the virtue that is produced there is greater than even the hesychist who lived this life of radical solitude, because all of the rough edges are being knocked off, if you will, in, in all the ways that we cling to ego uh, are removed from us, because there's an unending, unending resource there and the members of the community to do it for us. And uh, and so few are willing to leave it easily. And I think typically among the writings of the fathers that it said that one should have lived that life for a long period of time before embracing the life of greater solitude. That it's unusual for a person not to do that and kind of dangerous unless you've been formed for a long, long period of time. He goes on to say, in a certain Cenobitic monastery, there lived a brother who, though in appearance, he seemed more worthy of scorn and less important than everyone else, was in wisdom, however, a great note of great note and eminent. Alas, he was insulted and ridiculed by everyone, and often they would unjustly beat him. He suffered this with courage, without condemning anyone for anything. Another brother in the monastery, through the operation of demonic forces, stole the holy vessels from the church without anyone imagining that he had done it. Afterwards, there having been a search conducted to find the stolen vessels, everyone attributed the crime to the brother who had debased himself, condemning him for having committed the sacrilege. Since he maintained that he was completely ignorant of the matter, he was deprived of his monastic habit by the abbot personally, confined in chains and given over to the steward of the lavra for examination. The steward beat him with a whip and administered other punishments. Despite this, he confessed nothing, but continued without changing his story to protest his ignorance of what had taken place. At this, they turned him over to the civil governor so that he could even more severely be punished by him. Wow. Religious life was much different back then. <laughs> Corporal punishment uh, was uh, often used. The governor put him through various tortures, searing his skin with hot irons, locking him away for many days without food in a dark and suffocating jail. Because he continued to deny committing the sacrilege, he was on this account condemned to death in accordance with the dictates of the law and this with the agreement of the abbot and the brothers for the sentence appointed for sacrilege was death thereupon he was led away to be beheaded on seeing what was happening the monk who had stolen the sacred things pained in his soul approached the abbot and told him i know where the sacred vessels can be found Thus, please see that the brother is not beheaded. You think that he could have said something a little sooner before he was seared with hot irons. Uh, it might have been a little bit more helpful. But at least he comes to his senses and reveals the truth. All the monks then gathered and finding his body reposed in the repentant position, took it and transferred it to the church so that he could be buried there. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped a paragraph. The abbot conveyed this to the governor, and as soon as the brother was released, he thereupon returned to the monastery. He lived for only three more days, and as he was praying, departed to the Lord while kneeling. All the monks then gathered, and finding his body reposed in a repented position, took it and transferred it into the church so that he could bury, be buried there. 
immediately the wooden gong was struck and the whole avra came together. Out of reverence, all the fathers rushed towards the body, wishing to take from it a small bit of his clothing as a blessing or a strand of his hair for a blessing. The abbot, fearing that they might even divide up his body, took the remains into the altar and closed them up securely, waiting for the superior of the lavra to come. In a short while, the latter came and having lighted candles and incense, asked that the body be taken out of the altar. And thus the elder priest rushed to open it quickly. But when he opened the altar and went in, Along with several others, they found the repose man's clothes and undergarments, but not his body, which they ultimately could not find anywhere. Then everyone began to glorify God and say tearfully among themselves, Do you see, brethren, what great things humility and long-suffering bring to us? Let us less struggle to endure temptations and self-abasement for the Lord, and truly we will be glorified and honored and ruled together with him in eternity. So it's a brutal story. And even when he dies, uh, they rush to the body to gather uh, uh, relics. And there's something repulsive about it because they had treated him so poorly in life, uh, both uh, before he was accused and afterwards and then when it's revealed that he had maintained uh his silence and humility even in the face of the great torture uh then they run to him as a saint and treat him as a saint you know and so much so that the superior worries that they're going to pull every piece of him apart and so he has to you know hide the body away until the superior comes and uh, and so it's somewhat fitting, you know, that when they finally do open the grave, that there's nothing left but his undergarments, that uh, that he's been he's been raised outside of the grass uh, of of these men, and you know the end of the story is they're acknowledging the humility and the long suffering. Uh, uh, and what it brings. One would hope that it also fostered a spirit of repentance um, because there was, you know, almost uh, uh, the way that they approach him, there was almost a materialistic way uh, that they did so, you know, wanting to get a, have a piece of him in the same way that they wanted a piece of him in life, you know, in the sense of punishing him and participating in that punishment and rebuke. And so this is, you know, I think on some levels, a cautionary tale for us, because even in the recognition of something, uh, you know, uh, even of sanctity, uh, we might still not uh, understand it or embrace it in reality. It's one thing to acknowledge uh, the the power of it. It's another thing to emulate it and uh, to to really embrace the truth of it. And they were very far from humility uh, in their life as a whole, including the abbot. You know that they treated this monk as an object rather than a human being. And you know I joked a little bit there about the corporal punishment but you know there was you know such a swiftness there and a brutality uh that we sometimes see in our own day that there can be a glee uh that comes from uh the punishment for others that seems just in one's own eyes and we see that taking place you know throughout the world in our own day and uh, a kind of a brutality toward the other and uh, and certainly, uh, uh, there, it betrays not only a lack of humility, but a lack of charity, I think, here. Louise writes, the Catholic protagonist of the movie entitled A Hidden Life 
A True Story is a beautiful example of humility. In 1943, he did not justify why he preferred to be tortured and killed by the SS, his compatriots, than signing an oath to Hitler. His heart belonged to Jesus Christ. His wife, also divided to Christ, supported his decision, despite the difficult hardship this brought to her and her three children, two contemporary unknown saints. Right. You know, that's by far, I think, a far more a beautiful image than what we uh, see here and experience. That uh, certainly we see the humility here and uh, in the poor soul who was tortured so, but the lack of humility uh, creates a kind of visceral reaction within us. And maybe that's a good thing, you know, that it, that it would sh shake us up somewhat. We can see what even monks are capable of doing, not just in their lesser moments, but uh, under the influence of, you know, this kind of harsh judgmentalism and pride. Uh, is that the name, Blessed Franz? Or is this another saint that you're speaking of, Blessed Michael? Yes, that's him. Okay, thank you. Oh, I haven't actually haven't seen that movie yet. So I'll have to I'll take a look. Okay. Concerning you Sinos, the cook. In a certain monastery, there lived a young monk by the name of Euphros Euphrosinos. He served the brotherhood as a cook in the kitchen. Since he was kept continually unkempt by ashes and smoke, most everyone paid him no heed at all. In this way, he was successful in concealing his bright virtue. For since he was constantly covered with ashes and blackened by smoke, the more indolent brothers ridiculed and made fun of him and heaped insults, injury, and mockery on him. His abject clothing, his quiet countenance, his silence, and his tolerant attitude, they took as an excuse for this, unless without fear, they made fun of him, humiliated him, and even struck him. So it's interesting. You know, they mock him because of his countenance, but also because of his demeanor because of his virtue, that he is not driven to anger by it and puts up no, uh, again, uh, outer shell uh, to protect himself. Uh, I can look pretty mean, and sometimes looking mean can make people leave you alone. <laughs> and I'm sorry to say, but, uh, but we... I think in general, in our own day, we do uh, surround ourselves. We protect ourselves in the sense of not engaging others with a kind of vulnerability, looking others in the eyes, even when walking along the street, engaging uh, each, each other with pleasantries. All of that has begun to fall off. And I think part of the reason is that we want to protect ourselves from some of the things that are said here, it's, you know, it's clear that they take advantage of the fact that he's meek and gentle. Uh, but uh, I think in our day and age, sometimes we feel that we have to be harsh uh, in order to protect ourselves, you know, not, not show ourselves to be vulnerable. Now, the abbot of this monastery who conducted all things in a God-pleasing way and had in this manner achieved great boldness before God, was once beset by the following thought. Namely, he desired to know precisely who, from his monastery or from among his spiritual flock, was greater in virtue than the other brothers, who was unlike unto all others in the fulfillment of the commandments of God. And since he was continually beset by this thought, he besought God persistently to bring his desire to fruition, and to reveal to him the one who was first in virtue among the brothers. So an unusual thing, you know, an, an idea emerges in the heart of the superior to, to seek the one who is most virtuous. 
So as he was praying alone one night, he fell into ecstasy and was carried off to a place of indescribable charm and which evoked great delight. That is, it was filled with a wondrous fragrance and was adorned with every kind of tree. The fruit of these trees was dissimilar to the fruit from any known tree and was completely different both in its beauty and size, being superior beyond description. Below these trees, there ran pure water and the sight and the beauty of the place were truly splendid. The abbot gazing on all this thanked God and the cause of all good things and considered himself fortunate to have been made worthy of such a great honor. Then wanting these wondrous fruits, he ran to pick some of them. However, he could not since the fruit along with the branches was too far up. Having tried several times to fulfill his wish without success and his hands remaining empty below the trees, he saw that young brother who bore the name of joy, Euphrosinos, joyous in Greek, walking before him in the midst of this most gracious paradise, enjoying bountifully all that was to be found there, the tree branches leaning down to him and offering up their fruit so that he could cut it off and eat whatever he wished. I love these stories. I mean, there's something very powerful about that, that the tree branches bend down to the humble one uh, in order that he might eat of their fruit. Surprised by this strange sight, he said, my child Euphrosinos, who brought you to this place and gave you permission to stay here? And he with a smiling face replied, father, the only lover of man, God, entrusted to me these good things that you see to enjoy them and to have them under my authority. Again, the abbot said, and can you now give me some of that fruit? You can take as much as you like, Father, Euphrosinus answered. No, I can't, my child, the abbot said, for as many times as I tried, I could not. Then Euphrosinos boldly approached a tree, took with his hand fruit therefrom. They were apples and were truly splendid to behold and to smell, and gave three of them to the elder. The elder receiving them with great joy immediately awoke from his vision and indeed found these three apples in his hand. Fully filled with fear and trembling, he ordered immediately that the uh, talenton be sounded. But he did not at the time, while saying the morning service with the brothers, make any comment about all that had, he had seen. However, as soon as the appointed hour of the divine liturgy came, all of the brothers having been gathered in the church, he liturgized himself, celebrating together with them the divine mysteries. After the dismissal, dismissal, standing before the holy table, he once more took up his priestly vestments, ordering that the brother Euphrosimos be summoned. Several of the brothers therefore ran to the kitchen and quickly got him, leading him to the abbot just as they had found him, his face and clothes all soiled with ashes and smoke from the kitchen. The abbot then asked him, my child, where were you last night? The brother lowered his head towards the ground and gave no answer at all. But since the abbot insistently repeated his question and pressured him to answer, the young man, his eyes filled with tears, answered him in a serene and humble voice. Do you not know, father, where both of us were? Then the abbot, overcome by awe, forthwith produced the three apples and asked the brother, perhaps you recognize these? Yes, Father, Euphrosinus replied, as you know, I gave them to you as you directed. Euphrosinus, my child, you are blessed for you have been made worthy to enjoy such spiritual riches. Thus I ask that you become the protector of my wretched soul Continuing, he related to the brothers those things which he had seen in his vision. 
Babbitt then fell at Euphrosinus's feet, while the latter became very upset with this, feeling ill at ease, crying with sighs at this extreme show of homage, and completely undone by lamentations and tears. Afterwards, the abbot took him by the hand and led him into the altar. There, having cut up these three apples in small portions into a sacred vessel, he gave to each of the brothers these portions. The young man, in that he was unable to accept honors and laudations shown him by everyone, secretly fled from the monastery and disappeared, for he considered the praises of men as assaults and greatly destructive to the soul. Thus he most prudently preferred to remove himself far from these honors so as to succeed in saving his soul. What a magnificent and uh, beautiful story. Uh, the uh, especially the little encounter there between the abbot and the the young monk where he pressures him to reveal the truth and uh, and how ill at ease he is with it. And certainly what is described uh, uh, in what follows that he's unable to, to bear it and uh, to accept it and uh, that and found it painful to accept the praises of others because he knew so well the fruit, the spiritual fruit that had come through humbling self, himself or being humbled in the way that he was, having worked in the kitchen for so long, that in uh, humbling himself before the community and before God, uh, he was raised up in order uh, to taste the very fruits of the kingdom. And uh, and having experienced this, he could no longer remain within the monastery. And so we come back to, you know, the first point that we had discussed, that the, the saints come to love the virtue and desire it, even when it is seen as being absurd by, by others, that he had truly tasted in more, way that, more ways than one, the, the glories of the kingdom that came through uh, embracing this godly virtue. Uh, so much so that he was not willing to part with it, so would part with, from the monastery uh, because now he had become the focal point of praise. So much so that the abbot wants to place himself under his care. And so we, we see, we begin to see what is emerging again in John and in the Evergatinos, John Climacus and the Evergatinos, that uh, this is a very different image of humility. You know, it's, it's not what we typically think of it as a virtue of you know thinking ill of ourselves or acknowledging our sin or our poverty that it becomes for us again that door to the kingdom because it, it is so reflective of the, of the very nature of god and what god has revealed to to us of, of himself and so something to be truly desired and uh, so you know, this is, again, something that we can't read about and expect that I think that we would understand. It's something that we would have to pray deeply about, ask to be, have it revealed to us, and, and then to allow ourselves to experience it uh, firsthand. That this is where the, the knowledge of the, of the beauty and the value of this virtue comes from. Otherwise, it remains a charming story for us. Uh, and you know how that is. Those charming stories can slip out of mind very quickly whenever we're faced with the, you know, being the per center of the story. <laughs> Any thoughts or comments about this? Again, this is solid food. 
you know, both in the latter divine and uh, latter divine ascent and ever getinos. Uh, this is all very challenging material. You know, it really stretches the mind and the heart and our willingness to trust in the providence of God. Turns the world upside down in a pretty powerful way. So no thoughts, no ideas. Okay. I don't blame you. I, I'm sort of struck silent by them myself. So that brings us to hypothesis number two. Okay, a couple thoughts coming in here. Uh, Michael writes, how much these stories show you must be prepared to be, uh, you must be prepared to be dressed down. Isn't the greatest test to stay facing praises? Hmm. Well, uh, Michael, I would say yes, to be dressed down and, uh, in so many different ways. I think that's what we see in these stories. You know, this, uh, even those who externally seem to embody the life of virtue and have made great commitments in their life to pursue virtue often become the vehicle of producing true virtue in others. And, uh, and so it does mean that be prepared to be dressed down, to be humbled is often to be humiliated. And Louise writes, isn't the greatest test to stay facing praises? Well, you know, there can be something humbling about this, but I, I think what we find in uh, in Climacus and in, in the writings here uh, are those who are living in certain circumstances, monks who are pursuing these virtues in such a way that they have removed themselves from the world and who have a very clear sense of the dangers of praises. And, uh, and we will hear it over and over again throughout this text that, uh, you know, he who praises another, uh, you know, puts them to the test, you know, brings temptation upon them. And, uh, and so if this cannot be pursued in the monastery, then I think one, you know, would feel that I have to leave, especially to the extent uh, that, you know, the virtue here is so perfected in the individuals that we're reading about, that they become the, the, the tendency of, of those around them is to adore them, not just to see the beauty of what Christ has done in them and to, to thank God for that, but to, to elevate them in such a way that is inappropriate. And we saw this in the previous story. You know, the first movement of all of the monks was to go and gather a relic for themselves of the individual uh, so that they could possess something, that they could take something from him, even in death. You know, again, there was something uh, uh, this worldly about that attitude. And similarly here, you know, not that the abbot's intentions weren't good. I mean, he was certainly overcome by what he had experienced. But nonetheless, uh, the manner in which he placed himself and the brother before the community, that he had exposed this reality to all, uh, that then it places him spiritually in a kind of jeopardy that a greater wisdom there would have been perhaps to engage the young monk, uh, but uh, not necessarily to draw everyone into the church and to tell them the whole story. And, uh, and because then uh, he, he makes, he provides an opening there, I think for Satan to attack this young monk, you know, that what he had been striving for for so many years could be lost very quickly. Michael writes, I can only imagine in the monastic life with having nothing of the world, clothes, possessions, etc., that things like praise risk becoming currency. Absolutely. And I, that's an excellent point. And I think that would be another reason why 
he wanted to flee. You know, he had nothing. Now everything was being heaped upon him. And, you know, what could he desire there uh, in comparison to what he had been given in Christ? Good thoughts, though. Very good. Hypothesis two. Well, we continue along this line of, of basement inviting humility. And we go deeper, though, into this idea of honor inviting pride, which I think might address some of the things that we were just talking about here. And so here we begin with uh, St. Gregory the Diologist. A certain Constantine, a very pious man who lived near the city of Ancona, served the church of St. Stephen the Proto-Martyr. Once the oil being depleted and having nothing with which to light the vigil lamps, he filled them with water, and after he had, as usual, placed a wick in each one, lighted them as though they were filled with oil. Now this man who performed such miracles was known for how humble he was, since his reputation had reached far and wide on account of the miracles that God performed for him, no small number of people from various places rushed to meet him. And thus there came a certain farmer from far away in order to see him. The saint happened at the time to be standing on a four-legged wooden stool, making ready the vigil lamps. He was very short in height, with a thin body and ugly face. Now the farmer insistently asked to be shown who this most pious man, Constantine, was. Those present pointed him out, the man who was standing on the stool, to the farmer. The farmer, judging the man by his bodily exterior, concluded upon seeing such a short and thin man that this could not be the man about whom he had heard, since he was reputedly a big man. Sort of interesting, the idea that because of the greatness of his virtue, he would have greatness of stature. <laughs> Often the opposite seems to be true. It says you know, John of the Cross was a teeny guy and uh, Leopold Mandic. I don't know if any of you have heard of him, the great confessor, was a teeny little guy too. St. John Henry Newman, if you've ever seen his cassock, he was a little guy too and not very pleasant to look at. And so... Uh, uh, you know, one has to be careful there. You know, greatness in the world is often judged uh, in this particular way by appearance. Uh, I anticipated seeing a man, but he does not even bear the slightest resemblance to a man. On hearing these words, the man of God left the vigilance and quickly ran to the farmer to embrace him. Putting his arms around him, he began kissing him sincerely and proclaiming that he owed him great thanks for the judgment which he had rendered of him. And he said to the farmer, your eyes alone are open to seeing who I am. Imagine then, Peter, if you remember, Gregory is often talking to a disciple named Peter in these little discussions. Imagine then, Peter, what great humility th this wondrous man had to, point, to the point of loving with lavish love, that farmer who had found him repulsive. For an offensive insult which is rendered externally reveals the character which one has concealed internally. Just as the proud feel satisfaction with honors, so those who are humbled of mind are especially thankful for the attacks and scorn which befall them, namely, when they are thought worthy of disdain in the eyes of many. Wow, that's an extraordinary thing that, you know, he shows the greatest affection and love, lavish love to this farmer who mocks him for his appearance because uh, he tells him, you, you're finally, you finally come. You're the only one who sees what I truly am that my, the ugliness of my exterior is only matched by the ugliness of my interior. And so thank you. But this idea that, you know, the humble experience being humiliated or insulted in the same way 
that the proud experience praises. That's a hard thing to imagine. That, you know, because we, we know that the slightest bit of praise really elevates the heart and <laughs> makes us, even the smallest thing can really make us feel pretty good about ourselves. And so the idea that, you know, somebody insulting us or look, looking at us in such a way that we would love that is almost too, too hard to imagine. That is when they are despised by others, the humble of mind reckon correct the very vision that these other people have of them. For as they consider themselves, so would they have others think about them. Anthony writes, having lived in a Calvinist environment, alarm bells are going off in my head about this kind of humility. <laughs> yes, well, I, that's a good point. You know, this idea of the, you know, human being as being dung and the grace of God being more like snow resting over dung, but underneath it, it's still dung. And, uh, and so this kind of distorted view of human dignity, I think is Anthony's putting his finger on here. How do we avoid that in our understanding of it? And I think the only way that we avoid it is in the way that both John and the writers that Vergatinus are presenting it to us in the context of Christ, but also of the kingdom itself, that this isn't uh, self-hatred, that it is to come to know oneself as being loved by God as one is in himself or herself, uh, and in that poverty, you know, letting go of the illusions in order that we might come to see something greater, our dignity and the dignity that is only to be found in God. Because you're right. I think uh, this could very easily slip into a kind of self-hatred uh, where a person simply despises them themselves. Uh, and all of this, again, is only seen within the context of what has been revealed to us. Uh, and I think throughout the course of history, uh, where we've fallen into error, Christians have fallen into error, it's losing sight of what, what has been revealed to us in Christ, that this humbling of God himself was done in order to lift us up, to participate in the very dignity of God himself, in the very life of God. And, uh, and that the love of God, even when it reveals that great poverty to us, and even though when it's painful, is always curative, that it's not punitive. And I, I think so often, uh, as is the case in with other virtues too, we can make ourselves the, the source of uh, understanding of the virtue, you know, the, that our limited judgment, human judgment, becomes uh, uh, the way that we perceive this virtue. And this is what I've been trying to say so poorly, I think, that what we are being led to see through humility, I think I would hope that we would see about all the other virtues as well, uh, that they, that for, in all of them, Christ is the standard. And, you know, he is the focal point in our pursuit of the life of virtue. And so whenever it leads to a kind of despondency or something like self-hatred, there is actually a turning away from God there. And I think this is why the fathers are so careful to describe the church as a hospital and the, the sacraments being a source of that healing and that repentance being so t uh, intimately tied to joy because of it bringing us to God. And I think 
so often in our kind of moralism, which would be a reflection of this, this Calvinist view, uh, I think in a more ex extreme way, when we fall into a kind of moralistic view of Christianity, we very quickly lose sight of Christ. And we make ourselves the judge, the judge of ourselves, as well as the judge of others. And uh, rather than see, seeing ourselves through Christ and what he's revealed to us about the very heart of God. So it's an excellent question, because I think uh, it is, and bells should be going off in the way that you described, because it, it could lead us to exactly that that place. So this is why I think this, again, the slow reading uh, of the text becomes so important because, you know, really wasn't until this time through the ladder of divine ascent that I heard John speak of humility in the way that he did. This idea of talking about humility being the door to the kingdom. I've probably read that a hundred times but I think it's been through these group discussions then along with the parallel that we find in the Evergatinos that it becomes clear about what they are really saying. That this is re revelatory to us of the very nature of God and this, and we're being drawn to participate in that life, in that virtue, the virtue of Christ. And I think our limited understanding of humility is often distorted. Remember, I mentioned the writing by Thomas K. Michael Casey called Truthful Living, uh, Humility in the Role of St. Benedict. He spends the whole first part of the book describing what humility is not. And, uh, you know, part of it is what we've just discussed here and what you described, that we often have this distorted notion of it. And one could see where the evil one would tempt us to exactly that, you know, toward a self-hatred that blinds us to the goodness and the love of God, that it creates a hard spot within us that, that seems almost unmovable, that blinds us to, to seeing the presence of God and the hand that reaches out to us when things are most dark. A couple of comments here. Rebecca, it's not easy to know the difference between heartfelt praise and flattery that is, that's intended to manipulate. So it's often better not to trust it, right? Because even if the intentions are good, especially in a monastery, uh, the intentions are good that the, how the evil one would use that is another thing as well. And uh, I think that's where these saints sort of pick up the danger. Michael writes, one of the greatest deceptions is meekness equates weakness as opposed to fortitude. Absolutely. Meekness, as we see, is a virtue. It's a strength. And it is allowing, uh, you know, us to shape with love uh, what our insensitive faculty reveals to us about sin and poverty both our own and others. So it keeps us from looking at others with a harshness, but it also keeps us from looking at ourselves in such a way that it would drive us into despondency. Suzanne writes, I just read something today that said that the purer the heart, the more the soul sees God. And the more it sees God, the more it understands its own wretchedness. This wretchedness is not a comparison with other men, but with absolute purity of God. That's right. You know, you often hear the saints say, you know, my sins are like the stars of the heavens. And you think, oh, it's just more pious, you know, a pious saying, you know, and, uh, but in reality, it's what they see. It's the truth that they see. Uh, and rightly, as you say, not in comparison to other men, or even to our own understanding of holiness or virtue, but in comparison to God and what has been revealed to us in Christ. So a lot to hear, uh, to think about. Dolores Hart, yes, thank you so much. That's the actress I was talking about earlier uh, who left 
Hollywood in order to become a nun. Uh, so there's some very good little uh, documentaries on her too that would be worth looking at. Uh, the book I mentioned was Truthful Living, Humility in the Role of St. Benedict. Any final comments before we wrap things up that brings us to 830? Okay. So we'll stop there this evening. And when we close, as always, with the our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.